0: You would make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 13. I intentionally decided not to have a scripture reading tonight. The the chapter is just not um, conducive to being read out loud for us to say amen to. It's kind of a harsh text, and yet one that I think gives us uh, an opportunity to talk about some things maybe that we would rather not. And maybe sometimes we would avoid if uh, it were our druthers, I suppose. Second Samuel chapter 13. You've seen the commercials. Uh, you take this, this certain um, uh, drug that is now out. Ask your pharmacist, ask your, ask your doctor about this. But, but be prepared because there's all these side effects that if you take it, while it may solve some things, it will also... It will also cause some other problems, perhaps, and you've got to weigh that and decide whether it's worth it. So that infection under your toe, is it worth turning your kidneys purple and hardening, you know, or whatever? It's kind of a weird—that list by the end of the commercial is so terrifying, I don't know why you're worried about that uh, infection under your toe. Um, we're going we're gonna to read what, is, what I think is considered the side effects of David's actions. We're going to begin with a cast of characters, and then we're going to read the story. Uh, the characters look like this. Absalom is there. Uh, he is son number three. David had several children, as you know, through his wives and concubines, and Absalom was number three. There is a. We're going to look at number one here in a minute, but number two never appears in the text. It's like maybe, maybe he died. Maybe he is just. Um, he's just never in the scene. So here's number three. He's probably thinking of uh, how close he is to being the next king, right? Because he's not that far in the line. Um, he, his mother was Maka, uh, and, and her dad was a king of, uh, of Gishor. His name's Talmai. Uh, but the important thing is that he had these long flowing hair. He's quite handsome. He's very charming. Uh, but he's going to be in this story. In fact, his name is the first name mentioned in verse 1 in the Hebrew text. Then comes Tamar, uh, David's daughter. Makkah's daughter, which means she's the full-blooded sister of Absalom. Then comes Amnon. You need to know Amnon because he's the oldest son of David. Number one, if things go like they're supposed to, he's going to be the next one on the throne. Um, His mom's name was Ahinoam. Uh, Absalom and Tamar are half-siblings, different moms. There's David, king of Israel, I don't think I put him on this list, but you know who he is. Man after God's own heart, um, had several children through his wives and concubines. And then there's Jonadab, David's uh, brother's son, which is his nephew then, and the cousin to all three of those that we've just listed. That's what you need to know as the story takes place. You need to know also where it's timed, right? This is the first real account Uh, following David's awful sin and his repentance, what David did with Bathsheba and then killing her husband and others, and keeping that secret for a year, finally coming to repentance once Nathan confronted him. And we are told in the last chapter, I think I put it on the screen here, we're told what to expect there's some foreshadowing already in chapter 12 when it says, Now therefore, the sword, this is Nathan talking to David, the sword will never depart from your house. Your family is going to be in turmoil because of what you've just done. This is what's going to happen because you've despised me, taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. We're getting prepared one chapter ago, that this is going to wreak havoc within David's family. These are the side effects of your sin, David. Yes, I've forgiven you. Yes, you are uh, not going to die because I've forgiven you. But this is going to be a side effect. Your family is going to cause turmoil because of this. You're going to be able to root it all back to this decision you made and these behaviors you exhibited And it kind of conveys to me this, that the more influential you are, the more costly your sin is. You're in a position of influence over people, so your sin has longer-term effects. It lowers the bar for everybody. This is true of people who have many people looking up to them uh, and aspiring uh, to be like them. This would be true of kings. This would be true of dads our behavior kind of reverberates the mistakes we make if we don't really go to great lengths to correct them it can go on and on in our families it starts with us it comes back to us because and it, it I, you didn't ask for it you didn't ask for it but that's how it works and that's why god says for us to be careful this is why i think presidents while we want to say their moral behavior doesn't make any difference it does after Bill Clinton did his, you know, I didn't really have sex with, it. that's not really what that is, Ever, all of a sudden everybody redefined what this immorality was, and I could redefine it any way I wanted to and justify my behavior because the guy at the top lowered the bar. He lowered it like for everybody. It's a weird thing. I, it shouldn't work that way, but guess what? It does, and he's not the only one. You've got Trump who, who has this horrible view of women. And he's got this horrible view of um, uh, ethnic groups and treating people by stereotypes. And then all of a sudden, guess what? It wreaks havoc in the whole country. And we can all say, well, it's not really his fault. Oh, yeah, it is. It lowers the bar. It does. He has great influence. And dads, that's where you are. When you decided to have a child to take care of, you put yourself in a position where your mistakes can really be implanted in them. That's how this thing works. Don't hear this as a demand you have to be perfect. But listen, if you know you're not perfect, why won't you easily repent when you are? Dads, we don't have to Get it all right and and be perfect and and never make a mistake. But when you do, you're in such a position that your repentance is more important than other people's are. You need to be willing to stand up in front of your family and say, I really blew it here. I blew it with my temper. I blew it speaking rudely to your mama. You you need to say this in front of them. And when you repent, y'all, it doesn't lower the bar. It raises it back up where it should be. I really think what David did wrong, and I, don't, I can't prove this, but while he repented privately to Nathan, I'm not sure that he repented to the nation, and he owed the nation repentance. And because he didn't, the bar that he had lowered stayed low. And what he's going to find is it lowered it for the rest of his family, and all of a sudden, when you do that, y'all, the rest of the family will live up to your worst moment. And that's where this chapter starts. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. That's one thing I didn't say about Tamar. She was breathtakingly beautiful. And after that time, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. This is a lie. But I'm just presenting the text. This is his words. He loved her. And Amnon was so tormented, he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. What a weird description. You ever been sick in love? You know, the flutters and the stomach aches. For she was a virgin. You're like, what does that got to do with anything? We'll talk about that. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So we're going to stop right here and we're going to say, you know, he has an attraction for his half-sister. In Jewish law, this was not to be allowed. You could not marry even your half-sister, even though the father of the nation did. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Abraham did, but the rest of the nation couldn't. Well, it's kind of, I don't know. Anyway, so that's how it is. It would not have been acceptable. But can I tell you, being attracted to her, he hasn't done anything wrong yet. It is true what people say, you cannot control who you're attracted to. We're all drawn to several different types of people for different reasons. There are beautiful people in the world, and it would be impossible for you not to be drawn and attracted to many people. If you ever fall for the idea, hey, there's one person for you that's your soulmate, and when you meet them, you'll fall so much in love with them, you'll never be drawn to anyone else again, that's a bunch of Kool-Aid you shouldn't drink. But the world picks that up and says, if you have an attraction, you need to indulge it. You need to explore it, experiment with it. Pursue whatever that attraction desires because that's authenticating yourself. There's a Hebrew idiom for this, and it's pronounced like this. It's not true. Your attraction gives you no rights and no privileges for action. Zilch. There is no value in that. You'll be attracted to many people in your life and you must learn to control these attractions. The fact that you are attracted has as much moral value as like a burp, right? The reason you burp, there's air in your esophagus or stomach and it comes out. It's a biological action. There are people in your life that for whatever reason, their looks or their attributes or their personality just causes you to respond with an attraction toward them there's any number of triggers like this and this will be true all of your life before you're married and after you're married so get used to this and figure out what to do with the attractions this young man could not get his mind no no he would not get his mind off of it it's a morally neutral thing but it creates this energy and creativity in you, and what you do with the energy that that attraction causes you is all the difference in the world. He dwelled on this. He dwelled on it. It inhabited his imagination, and he started creating scenarios in this world of these attractions about what he's going to do to her and what she will respond to him like. He didn't distract himself, and so he became, as the text says, tormented. Made himself absolutely sick, thinking only of this one thing that he knew he could not have. And when you start doing that with your mind, it starts affecting your body, and he could even be seen visibly to be ill. He got himself riled because she was a virgin. She was single, but he, she was totally unavailable to him. Leviticus 18:9 would not allow him to have her. And so she was off limits, but it didn't stop him from training his imagination to focus on her, and he wouldn't shake it, and he wouldn't change, and he wouldn't distract his mind. If you can't act on something, you are responsible for getting your mind off that something. It is your responsibility There are people that you cannot have that you might be drawn to. They might be too young. They might be married. You might be married. They may not be interested in you. Whatever the reason, you can't have them. And for those of us who are married, obviously you have a spouse and other people, no matter how alluring or off limits to you. But we have to be honest, there are those attractions there. You still find people that you're drawn to. And chances are, you attend church with people like this. You learn to silence the attraction and distract your mind with proper thoughts. It's not sin, attraction isn't, but it sure can spark it. We're responsible for what we do with our thoughts and those feelings and energies that attraction bring up. Amnon should have put on his big boy pants. He should have moved away, gotten on with life. He should have distracted his mind from what he could not have. Got on with life. Take a cold shower, gnaw on a stick, right? Date people. I don't know, he should have gotten a job rather than sit all day uh, being the child of the king and do nothing but imagine, right? You can suffocate all these attractions by simply not giving them the air to breathe. Dismiss, distract your mind, do whatever. But what Amnon didn't have was an example of a father who did this. The father just got married again. He just got another concubine. In fact, he just stole another person's wife. Anytime he was attracted, and every time he was drawn, he just got the woman for himself. And he didn't teach his son how to say no. You need to say no to yourself. You must deny yourself some things. There are some things that are wrong that you're thinking, and you need to get rid of them. Dads, are you talking to your sons about what to do with attraction? dads are you having these conversations are you telling your sons what you do do you admit, yes, there are moments like that with that commercial or that video or that Internet site, or that person in real life? And I know what could happen, and I, I, I'm going this is what I do to handle that attraction. If you don't listen, culture is telling our kids what to do with every fleeting attraction. They, get, they say, give it your full attention, give it its full integrity. Try it, explore it, experiment with it, because it may be your true self. No. A lot of those aren't. Tell yourself no. One thing I have to admire Amnon for is he got all worked up because he really did know that he shouldn't have her. Scripture was a great big stop sign for him, and he knew it. But the problem was he had friendships and influences that didn't respect that. Enter the scene, this other fella. Amnon had a friend, actually a relative, right? Verse 3, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very crafty man. Can anybody remember who else was called crafty? Like in Genesis 3? Who's crafty? Satan is crafty. Crafty means I'm pretty good at getting around things that I should stop for. I'm pretty good at working around things, getting things I want, right? Right? He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Why are you so sickly? Tell me. So Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And that should have been where Jonathan said, Well, <laughs> go swim for a while. Get your mind off and come back and I'll fix you up with somebody, right? We'll do a double date. Or That's not what he does. John Depp said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, because he always comes and sees his six sons, apparently, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. Prepare the food in my sight. Tell her bring that skillets, you know, that you can hook up in my room or in my house. And I will see it. I want to watch her prepare it, and I want to eat from her hand. This is weird. And why David doesn't go, what, boy? You know? So Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Anmon's house, prepare food for him. David sent for her. Now, if you remember the sinfulness of David, it was all about him sending other people. He sent Joab off to war. He sent to find out about Bathsheba. He sent for Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah. He sent a message to Joab about Uriah by Uriah's hand. This is when you start getting start getting this sense of entitlement, and I'm sending other people to do stuff. And here he's an accomplice here. He turns out to be an accomplice and he sends her to do this. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Blake Lamberson was doing something for his class. He sent out a bunch of texts saying, what uh, don't think very much about this, he says, but what does love mean to you? He's asking several people on text. It's kind of weird to text that to somebody, especially a guy, right? Talk about this stuff. And especially when you don't have a background, you don't really know what he's talking about. But I got to thinking about this. What is love exactly? Because Tamar is throwing this word, I mean, uh, Amnon is throwing this word around. I love my sister, I love her. What in the world does that mean? Our world has a weird thing. Hello, I love you. Could you tell me your name? I'm in love with you. What's your name again? Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the world as I see it, right? The way the world is. Here's what my final conclusion was. What, what kind of thing is um, love has to cover not just your dog. A lot of people texted him back about their dog. Isn't that weird? They bypassed their wife and talked about their dog. Is that not wrong? Their dog? A lot of them talked about their wife and their kids. But I wanted to go, whatever applies to them also applies to your enemy. Right? Are you not to love your enemy? Right? Church, right? We love our enemy. So whatever love means, it applies to them too. And I, I got to struggling with that kind of, what is love exactly? And I finally came up with this because it's a text. You can't just sit and talk about it forever. And so I, I said, love is a commitment to act in the best interest of another person. This commitment that I'm going to act in the best interest of you, according to what God says, right? So I can. that's my, toward my wife, that's toward my kids, that's toward my cats, that's toward... I guess. It's also toward um, enemies. But in this text, you're going to see that's not how Amnon's thinking this thing. That's not the love he's thinking about. So Jonadab comes up with this weird plan, and he starts planning it, and it actually happens. And notice what happens when he does this plan. It says, David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house, prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She may have been well-known for cooking, I don't know. But she took the pan, she emptied it out before him, put it in a plate, I guess, but he refused to eat it. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. And everyone went out from him. He just baked, He made everybody go out of the house. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber where I'm at, that I may eat from your hand. I just want you in this house. I guess being brother and sister, you don't think about this. But there's something really creepy about this. Everybody leave, and you come back. Tamar took the cakes that she had made, brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her come lie with me my sister the word took hold of her is this word overpowered he overpowered her he by force took her against her will maybe he envisioned this being a mutually consensual thing you know and so it says come here my sister sleep with me right And maybe in his imaginations, as he's thought about this for hours and for days, he thinks that she's going to be as open to the experience as he is, but he finds the most compelling part of this entire thing is the argument she makes. Even as he's grabbing her and overpowering her, forcing her toward himself against her will, she starts coming up with very spiritual and rational things to say about why this is wrong. This is brilliant. She's thinking clearly. But what we should be thinking about this, if we are even possibly thinking about anything like this, the Holy Spirit should be bringing these arguments into our brain. This is the right way to think. And so here she speaks. Finally, she gets to speak. Know my brother, there's the relationship they share. Know my brother, do not violate me. Do not humble me or humiliate me is technically what she's saying. Do not do this. Do not force me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So therefore speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. The arguments are very compelling, and I want you to listen to them because these are the arguments you need to be training yourself in your brain to stop you from doing stupid things in your imagination so you won't try to do stupid things in real life, right? Number one, this is not to be done among God's people, This is what pagans do. This is what godless unbelievers do out there in the nations and the other tribes around us. This is not how God's people act. We don't do stuff like this. It reminds me a lot of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You remember how he responded? Genesis 39, 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? If he didn't care about her or even himself, he should care about God, but he didn't. Rape is what this is. Rape and violence is godless behavior. And no person who has any awareness of God at all in their minds can let themselves do this. This is the very reason God sent the flood. The Thoughts on men's hearts were only violent continually. I want what I want. It doesn't matter what you want. The selfishness that thinks of only of what you want and not not regarding the best interest of other people is disgusting and that's the farthest from love you can imagine. And the term she uses here of foolishness comes straight from Genesis 34 when Dinah was raped as well. She is trying to make her see and make him see this is totally inappropriate. Fools say in their heart there is no god. What a fool is in the Jewish mind is someone who acts godlessly. And she's saying, number one, don't do this. God's people, don't do this. Number two, what about me? Do you know the shame that I'm going to wear the rest of my life? Do you know what this is going to do to me? You have this beautiful woman who's standing in front of him, and he grabs her by the wrist, I picture, and starts forcing her, and she's making every argument she can. Do you know what this is going to do to me? I'm going to wear this shame for the rest of my life. And by the way, the way the story goes out, she does. Never marries, lives a desolate life in Absalom's house. It is not love when what you do hurts her. I don't know what you call it, but it is not love when what you do shames and humiliates and dehumanizes another person. It is not love, and it's not appropriate for anyone who is a follower of the God who is love. It doesn't belong in our vocabulary. It doesn't belong in our experience or our our possibilities of our behavior. And she makes this simple thing. What am I going to do with my shame? He doesn't care at all. So let's get rid of God and do this. Let's get rid of her. And then she says very selflessly, Amnon, what's this going to do for you? You're going to be called a fool for the rest of your life. Everybody's going to look at you and know what you did, how disgusting a thing you did. And you even had a chance to think about it because she's pointing this out. He's going to realize when this is over, he played the fool and it was nothing like he imagined. Lust has a way of selling you an image of what's going to happen, and it looks glamorous. And then when you've got it, you realize how empty it is, and you've played the fool. But by then, it's too late. You've played the part, and everybody knows it. So first of all, it offends God, right? He doesn't consider Tamar's future. Doesn't consider his own. And then there's a, th- a fourth argument that's very compelling. When she says, "Hey, hey, stop this right now. We can go talk to my father, our father. That's disgusting. Talk to our father, and we can have this arranged. We can do this the honorable way. There is a proper way you could carry this out. And I think she probably could. But he's not interested." He would not listen to her, verse 14. Being stronger than she, he violated her, he raped her. There's this verse in First Peter chapter 3. Paul says, uh, after six verses talking to women about their marriage, he talks to husbands. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat her with respect as the weaker vessel. People debate what that means. What it means is you could dominate and have your way. You're physically stronger than her most of the time. And you could dominate her and stand over her and force her and have the worst marriage in your life. You can get what you want, but you're going to lose. And that is not what God's people do. And he says, if you do that, it hinders your prayers. I will not listen to a violent, selfish man who disregards and disrespects his wife. Talk to the hand, God says. But he did it. What follows becomes even more frustrating. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. What a weird line! All this time he's been saying, I love you, I love you. And then when he got what he thought he wanted from her by force, he looked at her and she represented his foolishness. When he looked at her, all he saw was how stupid he had been, how godless and how awful. And she's looking at him with a disrespect and an emptiness in her eyes because she doesn't love him. That wasn't love that he had just done right there. And he realized what he'd done and it sickened him, and he couldn't even stand her anymore. And he shoves her and get, get out of here, he says get out of here. Now she starts making this argument, and for you, this is going to sound so weird. For us Americans in the 21st century, this sounds offensive, but for her world and her reality, it makes all the sense in the world. She said, don't send me away. You send me away, and it's a greater shame than what you've already done. Her chances for marriage were gone. When he He's about to call the servants to get her out and bolt the door. When he slams the door, the door to her future and being married is gone too. In this culture, it was over. And she's saying, what you need to do now is you need to man up and take responsibility and and complete this marriage thing now. We can do this this way. But he refuses. He refuses her and sends her out to be desolate for the rest of her life. He wouldn't listen to her again. He doesn't listen to her. Listen, guys, the best thing you can do to love your wife is listen to her. Respect what she's saying. Somebody said this morning, You sounded so angry. Somebody said, Why is he so mad up there? I know it comes across that way, and I don't mean to. This makes me mad. This makes me sick. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence, bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. This is the virgin daughters. This is the way the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And she could no longer wear it. She ripped it, and then she put it away forever. Put ashes on her head. Went away crying because she knew her future would just be shame. And it was through no fault of her own. Thank God it's not that way today. That's the way it was then. Her brother Absalom figured out pretty quickly what had happened, and he said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace. Just just hold it in for a while. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of this, he was so angry, period. And he didn't do a thing about it mostly because he was impotent too what's he going to say but Absalom spoke with Amnon neither good or bad he didn't talk to him anymore because he hated him for violating his sister you're going to find out later on exactly what he does and you know this he ends up murdering him Here's what you learn from the lesson, I think, from just the story. We must learn to handle attractions in our lives. You need to get good at this. Everywhere we go, everything is sold by attraction. Everything, the fashions are driven by attraction. I'm not getting on to girls about this, okay? So don't think I'm lecturing them. Lori Fitz will get me a fit if I do this, and she's right about that. These styles sexualize our young people from a very early age. Girls who are 12 and 13 look like 15, 16, 17. And they want to. They want to look that way. And the styles make them look like that. And they're beautiful. and everything. There's attractions everywhere. And every guy in here, if, you, if we would just admit it to each other, and we do, th- listen, you go through this world, these things are everywhere. You've got to figure out how to control your eyes and turn your neck and distract your mind. You've got to. That's how living as a Christian man in our world has to be. And dads, you need to train your kids this. Empower your kids to handle the attractions. They're everywhere. Be honest about it. Two, you are responsible for who influences you. I hate Jonadab. Can I say that? I hate this character. Comes into this story, and Is a very shrewd guy, and he gives him the scenario. But can I tell you, Amnon is fully responsible for taking the stupid advice. I don't like the culture we're living in right now. There's so much about it that I'm frustrated with, and it's so spiritually difficult to be pure and holy in the culture we live in. I do not like it, but listen. While culture pressures us, it will never be an excuse. It will never be an excuse. We cannot act like that. Take charge of what influences you. This is called maturity. I am responsible For what I let influence me. And if you can't watch those movies, don't watch the movies. If you can't listen to that music, don't listen to that music. If you can't be around that person, don't be around that person. Take responsibility for your life. Third, love is when you want and commit to what is best for other people. And often what love that other people need from you is self-control and self-denial, not self-fulfillment. What most people need from you in this area is to sacrifice whatever that attraction is and be faithful for Teach clearly that sexual sin is wrong, and here's why. Let's get clear about this, and don't just say no, no, no. Let's say why. It offends God. It offends the person that you would be with. It offends your own body, Paul says, First Corinthians chapter 6. It's a sin unlike any other. And then finally, it hurts the community. Let's say it. Let's say it and realize it's not just about you. It's about a lot of other things, and and you're keeping yourself pure. It's not just about you, but it is about you. Number five, there's always been a double standard in the world concerning men and women. But be very clear that violence and assault and rape are awful sins that should repulse us. And when a woman says no... She means no. And even more than that, I wish we had Christian godly men who would never pressure it in the first place. I wish you would just be men and avoid it altogether until it's appropriate. But it's like we were expecting too much of men to say that. But I told you this morning that our only real source of authority is Scripture, and I'm going to say it this way. Boys will be boys is bogus. It's bogus. You are to be men of God. Rise up, O oh men of God, and let's act like it. Let's stand up and be people who will never pressure a woman to do something that is wrong and against God and certainly that would hurt her. You don't do that. We are people who will be honorable. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Not like the heathen who don't know God. It is God's will that you be sanctified, you avoid sexual immorality, that each one of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And in this matter, don't you wrong your brother or sister. Six, sexual assault in particular must be addressed. This silence, this get smart cone of silence, This silence that overtakes David is disgusting. The most offensive thing in this chapter was David doing nothing. I guess he felt like he didn't have a right to speak or maybe it involved two sons he equally loved. But not responding only made matters worse and build up. The actions we take in response, may not be perfect, but no action is not an option. Justice is a value of God. And finally, there's one other thing. One thing can stop and heal this, and that's repentance. This is not uh, repentance we often look at as a, a spiritual value, We're being forgiven by God for our sin. It is that, but it's also indicating clearly that certain behaviors we've engaged in are wrong and all out of bounds. I need to say it with my lips to people who need to hear it. David should have publicly repented clearly communicated what he did wrong and to lift that bar back up and say this is what god's will is i violated i the king am under king god right no matter what influence and what power i have i'm still under god and when i don't do that i lower the bar i've got to raise that bar back up he should have required amnon to repent with his mouth his lips to say what he did wrong and face punishment it doesn't fix everything But it is necessary for full healing, and healing can't happen without it. This is just not a lesson for an invitation. I didn't do it to see a response. I did this because the text says it, and we live in a world where this is rampant, and it's just frustrating that sometimes the church is the last one to speak about it. I hate talking about this stuff. But when the world is talking freely and they're saying their lies to the entire world, sometime, somewhere, God's people have to speak up and say, this ugliness of the world like this is sin. It's wrong and out of bounds for us and for everyone else. And so tonight, we say that. I hope it helps somebody. You can be forgiven of sexual sin like this, but you have to repent of it. You have to bring it into the light. Otherwise, that darkness lets it perpetuate, hurts more and more people. And so, tonight I just say to you, I just say to you, live pure, honorable, holy lives. And when those attractions come up, and they will, handle them with integrity, handle them with purity, handle them with the Word of God, and live your life honorable before your fellow man. Let's sing.